Stella made a beat, so it's go time. What's up, guys, and welcome back to another edition of the Core 4 Podcast. The Core 4 is a podcast under SV Nation's Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network, alongside GBB Live and the soon-to-debut 3&D Podcast featuring special guest Eric Hasseltine. You can find that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Grizzly Bear Blues is a blog under SB Nation. Find them on the web at grizzlybearblues.com or on Twitter at SB and Grizzlies. I'm your host, Parker Fleming, and Nate is not with me this week, but it's okay because I have the producer of the Gene Otto and Jeffrey show every day from 2 to 4, none other than Connor Dunning. Connor, what up? What's up, sir? How are you? You know, not bad. I mean, we sat together to watch the Grizzlies get their asses kicked last night by the Golden State Warriors, but these things happen. Yeah, uh, it was um, probably one of the ugliest basketball games I've ever seen in person. And yeah, getting our asses kicked is probably the perfect way to put it. <laughs> it was uh, it was ugly. Yeah, it kind of just also served as a reminder that the Grizzlies... At the end of the day, they're in the same tier as the Warriors, regardless of what the winning streak indicated, because the Grizzlies are more than likely going to finish as a bottom five team. If not, they'll probably finish like six through eight. And the Warriors, they have Steve Kerr, who has coached hundreds and hundreds of way more important games than Coach Jenkins has so far in his NBA career. And they have a Hall of Fame player in Draymond Green, who is also one of the better playmaking big men of this decade. So, I mean, it's on paper, it sucks because their second best player last night was Alec Burks. But at the end of the day, like, I don't, I don't know what we really expected, you know? Yeah. First off, how dare you disrespect Eric Paschal like that, calling Burks their second best player. But um, to your point, last night was Draymond's best game of the entire season. At the end of the day, he he is a Hall of Famer on the court that has experience that can calm a young team and help them make runs. Steve Kerr, is, you can whatever you think about his coaching ability, the thing is, is that he has more than 13 games of coaching experience like Jenkins has going up against him. So. Yes, on paper, the Grizzlies should have absolutely won that game. Yes, the effort was definitely disappointing. However, it is not the end of the world. The sky is not falling. This is a young team that need, that they're going to get punched in the mouth. Yes, it is. It's kind of, I mean, I understand the frustrations about their effort. I really do. But when you look at all the factors surrounding it and you look at what actually happened during the game, it, it kind of is what it is. It, it is Jaron just – he got in foul trouble early, and he got in his head. Jaw ja played fine. He started off kind of rough, but he finished the game pretty well. 
but it was just overall there was a lack of effort. They were sluggish on both ends of the court. It was just an ugly basketball game that a young team has every once in a while. I really do think that they looked forward to the Lakers on Saturday. They probably got in their heads a little bit during that winning streak and thought they were a little bit better than they than they actually are. And they just didn't take this team seriously because they had only won two games and they got punched. That's what happens. It, it happens to a young team every single year. I mean, Joe had in his piece uh, today that even the G&G era, Grizzlies, do not show up for basketball games sometimes. It, I mean, I, you can be frustrated with it, but you also need to be put your frustrations in perspective, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. And I also echo everything Joe had in his column today addressing the overanxious Grizzlies fan. I had the full recap for last night's game. And really the whole premise of it is like these things will happen. You mentioned how Ja, he looked fine, but he also did look like a rookie point guard and was just out of control at times. His jumper wasn't falling. He couldn't really finish at the rim over guys like Willie Cauley-Stein and Marquise Chris. God, I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, Brandon Clark, even, he's usually like shooting 50% from the field. He shot 6 of 14 last night, largely just unable to finish in that little mid-range area hitting shots he's supposed to. Dylan Brooks, he couldn't get anything going inside the arc either. You mentioned Darren Jackson his foul troubles. When you're I, I don't think people understand when you're not in your rhythm and you can't get in and you don't find your rhythm early, it's hard to get up for you know finishing the rest of the game just because it's like, dude, I you just don't have it. You're just like crap, I don't have it. It gets in your head. And next thing you know, you're down 20 points. Especially for a young team. I mean, one of the valid, I think, frustrations from last night is that this team does kind of tend to sulk a little bit. Like if when they lose, they lose. Like we went through it on the show today. I think six of their losses have been by about 14 or 15 points. So when they don't have it, they really don't have it. And it's just uncharacteristic, especially from what we've seen from this team early in the season. They usually come out and they play hard. And then usually about the third or fourth quarter, the better team pulls away. And then that's when they really lose it. I think this was the first game. I guess you could talk, you could say the Nuggets game, but the Nuggets are one of the best teams in the Western Conference. So that one's, that one's a little bit more excusable. Um, but they just came out and it's like they expected the Warriors just to roll over. And when they didn't, they didn't really know what to do. Jaron was already in foul trouble. John didn't have his shot. Jonas was just pretty inefficient. And like you said, Brandon Clark wasn't even hitting shots. I mean, he came out with nine points in the first quarter, but other than that, he was pretty up and down the rest of the game. His rebounding was great, and they did play hard in the third quarter, but they just didn't have it last night. Yeah, absolutely. And you just mentioned that Laker game earlier, and that's probably one of the bigger games of the year. It's the first night they're going to have the Vancouver Grizzlies jerseys, the brand-new court. And also, it's the first time that LeBron and AD are coming to town. What do you really expect from that game? Like, just not even just the whole, you know, Vancouver unveiling, how dope it's going to be, all that stuff. But just like from a basketball perspective, because last time, Anthony Davis just was a monster among men out there. Yeah. Um, To be honest, I do expect it to be similar to the first time around. I don't think Anthony Davis is going to shoot like 16 free throws in a single quarter and pretty much out shoot the Grizzlies from the free throw line by himself. I don't think that that's going to happen again. I do think that we need to be a little bit 
not worried, but we do need to be aware that Jaron may get in foul trouble. It'll be interesting to see how Jenkins does the matchups down low to maybe try to avoid that for Jaron. But I think the Grizzlies are going to come out. They're going to be energized for this game. That's going to be the biggest difference because when the Warriors usually come in town, you have a sellout crowd. It's loud. There's a You're playing Steph. You're playing Clay. Like, it's an easy game to get up for. But then when the Warriors come in and there's – they announced 14,000 people, but let's be honest, it wasn't 14,000 people. And they were playing Eric Paschal, Draymond Green, like Marquis. Like, it's a hard game for a young team to get up. So I think that they're going to be energized, especially Josh's first game against LeBron – or our second game, I'm sorry, against LeBron, first at home. He's going to be really excited about that. Uh, he's going to be going up against Rondo. We're going to have AD. It's going to be the Grizzlies completely healthy with the Lakers completely healthy. Sold-out crowd. Uh, new floor, new jerseys. It's just the energy in the buildings is going to be a lot of fun. I think it's going to have a similar feel to what that Utah game had. But game-wise, I expect it to go very much like the first Lakers game. The Grizzlies will probably stick around for about two quarters, maybe three, but it's probably in the fourth they're going to pull away because we've seen it a few times this year from LeBron and AD. They just kind of decide that they want to win a game at some point, and that's usually what happens when they're playing a young team. Just go look at what happened in the Bulls game a couple of weeks ago. So I think the Grizzlies are going to play well. I think we'll have some encouraging moments. I don't think it's going to be a dud like it was against the Warriors. It's going to be a fun game, but ultimately the Lakers are just one of the best teams in the NBA, if not the best team. Yeah, I totally agree. I echo everything you say. And do you know what matchup I'm really looking forward to seeing? Which one? Brandon Clark versus Dwight Howard. Oh, that'll be fun. Two of our islands. Two of our islands. <laughs> no, but for real, like you can make an argument that those two players have been two of the better backup fives in the NBA this year. Maybe behind Montrezl Harrell, but let's be real, Montrezl Harrell should be a starting big, a starting five in the league. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a starter that comes off of the bench. If we're being complete, like he plays starter minutes for him. Right. So and it's also just two different parallels. You know, you have Brandon Clark who was the old rookie and he's uber efficient. He's the analytics darling of the draft. And he's just that guy this year where you're like, okay guys, why did 20 teams pass up on this guy? And then you have Dwight Howard who kind of offers a similar skill set at this point in his career as he's a role, big man who's going to protect the rim. He's going to score efficiently, but his trajectory is going to be, it's a whole lot different because he's he's a reclamation project. He's trying to revitalize his career. This is his last chance. I don't know. It's just going to be a cool matchup. Right. So, like, on the court, what do you think are going to be the keys to the game for the Grizzlies? Because I think at least one big one is going to be how they defend the pick and roll and, and the high-low game of LeBron and AD because it's been nearly unstoppable. And when you have guys – because, like, I'm trying to think how the defensive matchups are going to go because LeBron is going to be on the perimeter a whole bunch. And if he ever gets switched on Morant, that's going to be a problem for the Grizzlies. So it's going to be interesting to see how Jenkins comes up with a defensive scheme for tomorrow. If he tries to, because the Lakers guards are big, they're big and they're physical. So it's going to be interesting to see how Ja reacts to that because he's really been relying on his speed to get around a lot of guys. But when you have like Danny green and LeBron defending on the perimeter with, with Rajon Rondo and Avery Bradley's hurt, so he doesn't have to worry about him. But those are quick guards that can get to the spots that y'all are going to, but they're also bigger. So that physicality is going to be something interesting to see. And then, of course, 
Jaron down low, like you said, with Dwight Howard and Brandon Clark. That's going to be fun to see. Jonas Valanciunas, of course. It's just the matchups are so interesting tomorrow. It's going to be a chance for our young guys to kind of prove something and, and show us something that they haven't really been able to so far this year. Yeah, I agree. I would say my keys is a game. You mentioned the pick and roll defense and just making sure Jod doesn't get switched into a bad matchup. I think one thing that Jenkins should look into doing is going big around Jaw. So th- I think the starting five is big enough. You got Jaw, Dylan, Jay, Jaron, Jonas. But I would look at having a lot of lineups where maybe you're sliding Jay down to the two or you have Kyle and Solomon at the two and the three with Clark and Valanciunas or Clark and Bruno or Jaron and Clark or Jaron and Bruno, some sort of combination like that. Just go bigger mm-hmm. to kind of offset the mismatches that are bound to happen on the perimeter because let's be real, if you're having – who would Marco Gurich counterpart be? It would be KCP, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Okay, I'm not that worried about that. But let's say like you don't want Gugrich having to worry about Danny Green, both offensively and defensively. I mean, granted, he has good size and stuff, but he, he isn't going to punish Danny Green in any way right now. It's, at this point in his career. Um, I would say another key to the game is just a key that I have for most teams that have these duos like AD and LeBron, like Russ and Harden, stuff like Luca and Kristaps, stuff like that. It's don't let anyone else go off. You know, at the end of the day, you're not going to contain LeBron. You're not going to contain AD, especially with what you have on your roster. But you could contain right. Danny Green. You can contain Kyle Kuzma or JaVale McGee or Dwight Howard or Rajon Rondo. You can contain those guys. But if you let one of them, one or two of them go off alongside a, a LeBron and AD that are going to get 25 to 30, your chances your chances are already kind of low, but they would be slim to none if someone else explodes for a 20, 25 point night. Right. I, and, I, and I also think you mentioned Crowder. I think that he and Anderson are going to be huge parts of the game on Saturday. If the Grizzlies have any shot to win, both of them have to just make themselves known on the defensive end of the game, basically every single possession that they're on the floor, because they are ultimately two of our better veterans and two of really, really only three or four true veterans. It's Jay Crowder and Kyle Anderson, but they're known for their defensive scrappiness, and they have to use that in this game. And another matchup is going to involve Brandon Clark that I'm really interested in is his matchup against Kyle Kuzma because Kuzma does struggle on the defensive end. And Brandon Clark is so efficient and has already proven that he can score in a few different ways. If he can mess with Kuzma, that could be that could bode very well for the Grizzlies. Yeah, I agree. Kuzma is that X factor because he's really their only scoring pop off the bench. And like you had mentioned, he has a counterpart who, let's be real, honestly, like NBA Twitter and just casual basketball fans will argue just like, oh, Kyle Kuzma is way better than Kyle Anderson. But the separation between the two is not that far off. Kuzma's obviously Kyle a better Kuzma, Yeah, he's just – he's a more dynamic scorer. But if we're talking about overall basketball skill, 
I would, I mean, I think that you could make a legitimate argument that Kyle Anderson checks more boxes than Kyle Kuzma does. I mean, if we went to LeBron in a closed room meeting and we legitimately said, hey, you can take Kyle Kuzma or you can have Kyle Kuzma or you can have Anderson in, the, in a playoff series, who do you want? He'd have to think about it. He'd really have to think about it, depending on the match. Like, his, Kyle Anderson does so much on the, on the floor. He can, he's a point forward when you need him to be. He's a defensive specialist when he, that can guard five positions when you need him to be. He can hit a three-point shot. He makes stuff happen in the paint. We've seen multiple games this year where, where Kyle Anderson has stepped up and really led the Grizzlies to a victory. And every single game that the Grizzlies have won, it's been because one of the big factors has been because Kyle Anderson is playing, he's playing great. He's had a very good season so far. Mm-hmm. I agree. And so we're going to take a quick ad break, but we will get back to you on the other side. All right, Connor. John ja Morant. Woo! That's it. That's that's the tweet. John ja Morant. That's, that's it. That's the segment. <laughs> but for real, like, he's been spectacular. He's averaging around like an eight. I want to say it's like an 18-5 or 18-3 and 6. He shoot. He's actually efficient from the field, which is something that's kind of unprecedented for a rookie guard, especially one that has the ball in his hands as much as he does. I mean, what can we really make out of this at this point? Um, he's better than we thought he was gonna be. With, or, 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 let me put that in perspective. He's better than we thought he would be at this point. I mean, I still have his ceiling as a multiple time All Star superstar level type of player in the league, maybe MVP that that's, that's way down, way, way, way down the road though. But I think he's certainly at least an all-star level prospect at this point, but it's happening faster than we were expecting his confidence level. He has no fear. It's, it's one of my favorite things about watching the Grizzlies this year is that jaw is not afraid of any fight in the, like in the fourth quarter, he just decides that he's a leader and that's fantastic for a young team to have. He's not scared of the moment. He was defending Kyrie Irving in the biggest play of that game. He went right at Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell when he needed to in the Utah Jazz game. He has absolutely no fear. He kind of has that FU gene that you need these young guys to come in and play with. We talk about it all the time, but Jaw's best attributes aren't really things that show up on a stat sheet. It's his confidence, it's his basketball IQ, it's his court vision, and it's his passing ability. Those are really my favorite parts about him. He attacks the rim like a madman, which is a lot of fun. It's scary at times, but it's 99% of the time it's fun unless he lands super weird. But his finishing around the rim is also very good. Is also very good. And when he starts putting on a little weight and a little bit more muscle and getting more calls around the rim, it's going to be damn near impossible to stop him on offense because his shot's already better than we thought it would be at this point too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've already seen him starting to hit those pull-up jumpers, those pull-up threes that a lot of the elite point guards have, you know, it's not at that level yet, but that's something that's separated with guys like Steph Curry or Damian Lillard, Kyrie Irving. I mean, Russ, he's an inefficient shooter, but he can hit pull-up shots, whether it's from the mid-range or from three. Chris Paul, that's something like Kimba Walker, Mike Conley have added later in their careers as well. And Jaw's already doing that at 19 or 20. Right. And he's taking care of the basketball. 
which matters. His, his assist to turnover ratio right now is 1.6, and that's pretty good for a rookie that hasn't even played 20 games yet. He's really taking care of the basketball when you need him to, and that efficiency is really driving his ability to just kind of take over in late situations because you don't have to worry about him freaking out and turning the ball over or making the bad play. In most cases, he's making the right play right now. If anything, he's passing a little bit too much. You know what I mean? Like he passes up a few shots here and there that we would like him to take. But when he's aggressive and when he's making the right plays, he's damn near unstoppable. Mm-hmm. I've also really liked a lot of the comparisons people have had for John Morant. Um, Kendra Perkins had in a tweet last night that he's Rondo, Russ, and Kyrie all in one. But he's And then Steve Kerr last night before the game compared him to AI. The fact that the Grizzlies have a player comparable to that this early in his career and also generating a lot of this attention, I mean, both SportsCenter, and even then too, it's kind of like cheesy to say, but he's generating highlights, like stuff that's like yeah. mixed tape worthy. And we've never had that before in, on a, in a Memphis Grizzlies jersey. No, no, no. We've had all stars and we've had stars. Like the core four were legitimate stars and people around the league loved them. They respected them, but they weren't flipping to the Grizzlies every single night to watch them. John Morant pulls eyes. He makes people want to watch. He's a walking highlight reel. He really is. And the best part is, is that he's a walking highlight reel that can also back it up when you just watch him play. Even the plays where it's not unbelievable, they're always great basketball plays, and he's making the right plays. It's just his level of maturity on the court and how comfortable he is already is just so encouraging for the future. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad that Perkins did bring up the Kyrie comparison because it's something that I had kind of seen for like early in the stretch because of his finishing around the rim. In my piece a few weeks ago, I referred it, as the kids say, the jelly. He knows how to finish at the rim, but also finish with creativity. He has that same kind of ball-handling flair as Kyrie, but he just has a lot more athleticism. He has a lot more bounce, you know, similar to Russ. But, again, it's awesome having that kind of player. Right. And and speaking of Kyrie, his dribbling – ability in the paint is very impressive so far this season when he gets in between like two or three defenders and and when the when the paint collapses on him he's able to kind of get his way out of there with creative dribble moves and he's not and like we've said before he's not turning the ball over while he's doing that so it creates these highlight plays but with also efficient finishes and those that's the combination that you really want there um at the end of the day and the, the comparison that my favorite one that people have been making, and I don't think it's true really at all. It's two completely different players. And I mean, the Jordan stuff was fun for the first week. The only thing that he really reminds me about Jordan, or I guess two things. One is his confidence level because he's just basically like F everybody in front of me. I want to beat, like, I just want to beat him. But mm-hmm. the way he kind of floats in the air, have you noticed that? Like when he jumps, it's almost like he pauses and it's like a, he has like a millisecond or two longer and it's like he outweighs the defender and he just kind of ends up on top of him somehow when he lays stuff in like like the charlotte game winner i still don't know how he got that ball in but it's as it's like he got to the rim and just waited for the defenders to kind of go down a little bit more and then just laid it in it's it's pretty 
it's miraculous to see. It really is. Like, I, I can't believe he's a Memphis Grizzly. I thank God every single day. Yeah. And to answer your question, yeah, I do kind of see where he just, like, floats and levitates in the air. Really pay attention to it in the layup lines pregame. Like, he yeah. like usually players just pull stuff out of their bag, and he can just levitate when he's up in the air. It's pretty dope to see. But I do have this question, too. So, with John Morant, the thing that was very highly regarded coming into the draft was his passing ability. And I don't, I do think we haven't even seen John Morant at the best of his game yet because the Grizzlies don't necessarily have the weapons yet that are going to be there for the next great Grizzlies team, hopefully. Yes. Um, this isn't, I, I guess this is technically a criticism on the Grizzlies, but it's just kind of the reality of the situation. John Morant would have, he'd be averaging more than six assists if we had better shooters. We just, he just would be. Um, there's been many games where he's created, it seems like a million shots and they've, and they've missed a lot of them. So yes, when he gets better talent around him and when people kind of start to develop with him and they start plugging in a few more pieces and let's be honest, when Jaron kind of wakes up a little bit from the season, it becomes more consistent and he develops more of a back and forth with John the court, that's going to make it his assist go up as well. It's his passing ability is not what has been, I I guess disappointing. It has been kind of the lack of knockdown shooters that the Grizzlies have had when we thought coming into this season that we were going to have a, a better three point game. And we, we've seen it in a few games, but overall it's been pretty much like it has been in the past. Every once in a while, a guy will get hot or maybe one guy's hot for a game, but he's not for the next. It's been very inconsistent. And when a point guard needs guys to get assists, we're seeing the result of that right now. And I, I do want to ask you a question going off of that. Are you concerned at all or are any flags raising about John ja and Jaron playing together? Because we've only really seen one or two games where they've kind of put it together in the same game. Are you concerned about that moving in the future? Or do you think it's more growing pains and them figuring it out on the court considering they haven't even played 20 games together yet? Um, I would say it's probably, I mean, a mix of both. I'm not really worried, but also like... I'm kind of just anxious, you know? I'm anxious right. for them to have that good game together. That's where I'm right. anxious, and I think that's fair. That's a fair thing to say, even though I don't want to be the over-anxious Grizzly fan that Jim Mullinax is addressing. Um, <laughs> but I just think it's a part of the system. Um, Just going off of what uh, Coach Taylor Jenkins is used to, being in Atlanta and being in Milwaukee is he's he never had anything like Jaron and Ja in either of those systems. And by that, I mean he never had – there was never a point guard that needed the ball in his hands that much to produce. I mean, they had Jeff Teague and Eric Bledsoe. I mean, no disrespect to either one of them, but I think Ja is already in that tier 13 games into his career. Um. But also, too, like the big men in Milwaukee and in Atlanta, you had Al Horford, Paul Millsap, Brooke Lopez. They're all, they were all used traumatically different and they have traumatically different skill sets than Jaron Jackson Jr. And it's all about trying to capitalize and trying to find the ways to use them. I know last year, JB threw Jaron in the post a lot, and that's where everybody's been wanting him to see. Um, 
but that's something that the Grizzlies haven't really made a staple in their offense at the moment because they're really focused on the pace and space. And I think one thing that people should be encouraged about with Jaron Jackson Jr. is not just his three-point accuracy, but his three-point volume. He's hitting 37% of his threes at five uh, five attempts a game. I, that's strong for a seven foot one 20 year old. And I don't think people understand Absolutely. that. Um, but I think it's just growing pains. I mean, like Joe had in his column, Jaron hasn't even played a full season worth of basketball yet. And at the end of the day, neither is jaw jaws never played with a talent like Jaron Jackson jr. Before. And Jaron, for one, he's never been a featured option. I mean, going back to high school, I mean, I read that in Omari's piece with Tom Izzo. But, and then he's also never played with a point guard like Ja. Because, let's be real, Mike Conley wasn't, he wasn't Ja. And the system wasn't Mike and Jaron. It was Mike and Mark. I just think it's an overall adjustment thing, not just for... Like not just for the Grizzlies as a whole, but it's a really big adjustment for Jaron Jackson Jr., John Morant, and Coach Jenkins because they all have three of the biggest challenges on the team. I'm I am in total agreement with everything that you just said. Um, I don't think that there's any real reason to be concerned. Uh, Mark says this a few times on the show a week, but. I'm really not going to have any concerns about this real concerns about this team until we get to around Christmas. And if things haven't really changed once we get there, then we can start asking some questions, but I'm with you. It really does seem like that this new offensive scheme, which let's remember it's Jaron's fourth in four years. It's going to, it's going to take some time to get used to, especially when you have a dynamic point guard like John Morant. And like you said, I feel very confident with Jaron shooting threes now. Like when he steps out and shoots it, I, I'm like, I, that has a very good shot of going in, and I feel good about it. And we kind, both of us kind of noticed last night what they were trying to do in the offense. I think that I really got a good grasp of it last night, even though it was a terrible game. Just the way that they were moving on offense, it wasn't that Jaron was not taking shots. He just missed them. He missed a lot of shots last night. They were trying to make things happen for him in the paint. But we noticed that his swing man, is Dylan Brooks. <laughs> like there, there are a lot of plays where Jaron becomes wide open and Dylan just goes for the shot. And I love how Dylan's playing this year. He's been a, a pleasant surprise. Both you and I thought that people gave up on him way too early. I think he has he's a he's a serviceable NBA player. He can be like a sixth, seventh, eighth guy on a great team, but he can be a starter on a on a team like the Grizzlies, no problem. But he doesn't really – he's not really a playmaker per se. So when Jaron does kind of rely on guys like Dylan Brooks to swing him the ball in those situations, he's not going to get as many looks. So I think that is why this season we've really seen Jaron come into his own when he is the aggressor, when he is the one making things happen on offense, when he takes it from the high post and makes, and makes things work, and when he goes to the paint. So like his aggressiveness, I think, is the key to his game. He wasn't aggressive last night. But when he flips that switch, it's very hard to stop him. But as a 20-year-old trying to figure it out with, let's be honest, a new body, a new system, new, new teammates around him, the guys that he looked to for leadership last year weren't there, and he's now being asked to do it, that's a lot of pressure for a 20-year-old kid to take on. So let's give him some breathing room. 
You know, like that's what this season was supposed to be about. It's not about wins or losses. It's about the development of John Morant, Brandon Clark, Jaron Jackson Jr., and the other young guys on the team that you think are going to be pieces. It's also the development of Taylor Jenkins. People freaking out about Jenkins' rotation, his schemes and all that right now, it's way too early for that stuff. It just is. Yeah. I'm going to bounce off what you said with the whole rotations and stuff. I mean, this roster, aside, I the mainly the top half, you know, you have a lot of guys that would probably be rotation players on every other team. I mean, you have John Morant, Jaron Jackson Jr., Dylan Brooks, Brandon Clark, Jonas Valanciunas, Jay Crowder, Kyle Anderson, Tyus Jones. But everything else after that, it's a lot of French NBA players. So, like, you're complaining about the rotations. What is there better? That's all I'm at. What is there better? I I think the main complaint is people wish that he would play Jaron through the fouls more. And I, I do actually tend to agree with that. But he's also trying to prevent Jaron from fouling out every single game and getting on himself. Like, there's, there's two sides to that coin, and I, I kind of understand both sides of it. Like, yeah, we would like to see more rotation with, with Jaron playing more and more minutes, even when he is in foul trouble. But Jenkins also has to be careful about that because it's, it's really tough because Jaron does tend to get down on himself a little bit. And when Jenkins sees that, he can't really just leave him out there because that's going to leave – Jaron's teammates out as well like those guys need Jaron to be 100% in the game and I think when Jenkins sees that he's not he's, he's taking him out and he's talking to him and he, he needs to he's trying to almost train him to just stay in the game you know even when you get that second foul in the first quarter or maybe the third foul in the second quarter don't get down yourself stay out there like that is the main complaint about his rotation I've seen and then of course the Josh Jackson stuff, but that will come naturally, I think, as time goes by and Josh continues in the G League. And when he does eventually come to the Grizzlies, I do expect him to kind of be moved into that rotation. And I do think he may be able to fix some of that stuff because he's still really trying to figure out who his wing players are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. See, I, actually, one thing I don't really agree with is the whole Jaron Johnson Jr. playing through fouls because, for one, like you mentioned, he get, like he does get down on himself, but in the day, it's it's just part of growing up. Twenty, I mean, just remember, yeah, he's he's gonna grow out of that, right? And two, whenever like you've played basketball before, so have I. When you're in foul trouble, you do anything possible to stay out of foul trouble, which mainly means you give up some stuff defensively because you're like, oh crap, I don't want to foul this person, so. They right. get an easier exactly. shot. That's what you're risking when you leave a guy out there who is in foul trouble. Granted, I think yeah, it's that, one of those things. What... It's one of those things where maybe like if it's the third, like the middle of the third quarter, and he has four, let him play through it. But if he has three in the second quarter, don't play him through it because I mean you're putting him at risk to maybe pick up a fourth before halftime, and next thing you know, you have your first or second best player going through an entire half of basketball with only two fouls left to spare who, Oh yeah. He's also one of your difference makers defensively. That's not smart basketball. Like that's just not a smart strategic plan. I understand playing through the fouls, but like, that's the whole point. Like you're playing somebody through fouls. They're just going to try to, yes. At the end of the day, they might actually not foul when they play through it, 
but what are they risking at that? They're risking buckets. right, right, and I I agree with that. And we kind of saw what you're talking about come to fruition on Friday night against the Jazz. Jaron didn't really have foul trouble in the first half, but in the second half he did. But Jenkins allowed him to play through it then because you needed him, and Jaron and Jaron was playing well. He didn't really fill the stat sheet on Friday night. But he was playing well. Like, I, I remember watching the game and not thinking he ha- he's having a bad game. I think he only finished with, like, it was a low point total he had. But he, I just, I remember thinking it was necessary he was out there and he was making defensive plays and defensive stops when he need, needed them to. He eventually fouled out of that game, but it was with, like, a minute 33 left or something like that. So that was a time when you do let him play through it. Like, if it's crunch time, let him play through it. Early in the game, you can take him out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so we're about to have to wrap up, but I do want to ask you one question to close the show. So about a month ago or two months ago, I wrote about John Morant and Vancouver Grizzlies jerseys, more so in the fact where I posed the question, could the John Morant Vancouver Grizzlies jersey become the most iconic jersey in the history of Memphis? Now let me make my case before... I'll let you answer. So here's what I'm thinking. The core four, obviously, everybody has a core four jersey, but they don't have a particular one. It's not necessarily a Beale Street blue Zach Randolph jersey or a navy blue Tony Allen jersey or a white Mike Conley jersey or a Memphis Sounds Marcus Gasol jersey. It's just you have some sort of combination. With John Morant, the Vancouver jerseys are back it's a fresh jersey. Everybody already loves it. I mean, everybody probably rocks my baby jerseys without even knowing who he is. And <laughs> so true. And um, and John Morant, he's like we've mentioned throughout the show. He's flashy. He's a fun superstar light player to watch. And it's also his rookie season. At the end of the day, twenty years from now, that's what that jersey will be known as: John Morant's rookie jersey. So Connor. Back to the question. Could the John Morant Vancouver jersey become the most iconic in the history of Memphis? So I think I think that he has a very good chance to be. It it with and you kind of laid it out. It's it's what we've talked about the core four in general. Like we all love them. The NBA loved them. A lot, and most other fan bases respect them and understand what they meant for the city and the organization and, and why they're important kind of in the in the history I guess of the NBA but they weren't really sexy you know like the Grizzlies jerseys I've, I've really enjoyed them like my favorite jersey I personally have is the Mike Conley Sounds jersey that would be like the Sounds jerseys are probably my favorite design next to the I Am Man and the Martin Luther King uh, Lorraine Motel jersey like those three are probably my favorite behind the Vancouver one now and maybe maybe the Beale Street Blue one that came out last year or the, or the year before but I yeah, it's John Morant. He combines the superstar appeal. He combines just the throwback jersey element, which is huge now. I mean, nostalgia sells big time now, and it's just a fresh jersey. And people, and he's all over ESPN. He's all over highlights. The kids like him. He is a young player that a new generation is going to grow up with if he becomes what we think he can. And he and we've kind of hit this spot in in NBA fandom and in Grizzlies fandom where it's flipping the kids now. Like our generation grew up with the team and now some of us are starting to have kids. So our kids are going to have jerseys growing up. 
and damn near every single one, one of them is going to have a John Morant Vancouver jersey. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I think it has absolutely a shot to be the most iconic Grizzlies jersey when we look up 15 years from now. Fantastic answer. And Connor, we're about out of time. But just plug everything in. Let everybody know where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter at cdunny929. Listen to Giannotto and Jeffrey every single day from 2 to 4. CT, we're, we're, we're covering all the Wiseman stuff, Grizzlies, all that good stuff. So make sure you're listening every single day. Uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, you and I are going to have a pod coming out kind of left and right once, it, once the NBA season gets going. So I'm excited, man. Thank God NBA is back. Thank God the NBA is back. And so you can follow me on Twitter at Paca underscore Flocka. Follow the podcast on Twitter at the core four podcast with the number four, not the word four. And follow Grizzly Bear Blues on Twitter at SBN Grizzlies. Whether you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, or wherever you're listening to this show, make sure you like, subscribe, download, send it to a friend, put it on your fridge, all that fun stuff. And uh, with that, that's all, folks. 